It's a show with two retired detectives that were in the thick of New York crime, fast and hectic. They got some stories and some jokes. Even an interview with the most popular folks. Off the cuff, off the cuff. One episode just ain't enough. Get a little laughter and an interview too. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. I'm a retired 27-year veteran of the NYPD, retired as a sergeant out of Manhattan North Homicide Squad. With me today, my co-host, retired detective, NYPD detective, and straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing today, Phil? I'm good, uh, Billy, and uh, excited to uh, discuss the autopsy results of Gabby Petito. Absolutely. You know, and today, because of this, uh, a very scientific finding, uh, the autopsy results in the way of not the manner of death, but a cause of death. And we'll get into the manner of death later. I have retired NYPD, a detective sergeant, John Pellucci, who was a crime scene extraordinaire. In fact, he goes all over the country investigating some of the hardest crime scenes. And he's a, a wealth of information. John Welcome so much to the show today. I'm glad you take out of your busy schedule. I know the uh, the money machine needs to be oiled every week. There's all the all the money you're making doing that stuff. It's the academic machine these days. I'm uh, actually pursuing a master's degree now. Oh, that's great. Yeah. You know, yeah. I just want to show a little bit of um, of the press conference that was held today by the uh, Moab, uh, the Wyoming coroner, and. Um, Hang on, I'll, let me just uh, get this get this plugged up, and then we'll share it on the screen, and we'll uh, we'll give comments on it a little bit. It's not released uh, by state statute, and I'll be glad to entertain uh, some questions at this time. Hi, Brian. This is Alex with the News and Guide. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, I'm curious whether you're able to pinpoint a date of death and when, and if you know whether. You know, let me just Gabby's go back because we, we missed him family. saying what the actual cause of death was. Okay. Yeah, good idea. Autopsy findings and photographs and that sort of material is not released uh, by state statute. And I'll be glad to entertain uh, some questions at this time. Okay, let me just speed up time that uh, the body was found. Uh, that is actually more uh, uh, than the uh, uh, than our office. I, I, what's the question? I didn't hear a question. I apologize. This was the ID. Dr. Blue, thank you for your time. 
Okay, it's it's John Walsh from In Pursuit with John Walsh on Discovery ID. Dr. Blue, thank you for your time. I think everybody in the world believes that Brian Laundrie killed Gabby. Um, with your extensive work on the body, are you sure that it's Brian uh, Laundrie? And will the FBI issue a nationwide homicide uh, uh, warrant now that they know the cause of death? Uh, we are only tasked with the determination of cause and manner of death. Who committed the homicide is up to law, law enforcement. And I cannot answer the question about uh, the FBI. You would have to contact them. Jeremy Copas, you are now allowed to ask your question. Yes, hello, doctor. Um, if you could um, please... Can you comment on any other bruising maybe um, on the body that possibly was um, healing, possibly older um, bruises or cuts that, that might have um, been healing over the last couple of weeks before um, her passing? By Wyoming state statute, no other information about the autopsy is released. Just the cause of death. You know, it's a little bit brutal to watch this guy. Uh, so I just, um, I just wanted to say a couple of things. First of all, he's he determined that the cause of death was due to strangulation. The manner of death was, of course, homicide, which was ruled numerous weeks ago. Some of the stupid questions that the press, I was baffled by the question that John Walsh uh, asked. I mean, just out and out ridiculous. The guy said ahead of time. I'm not going to answer any other questions than what the cause of death was. Any other questions? About, so he asked, "Who do you think he did it?" Now they can. I mean, come on. He just told you he's not going to answer that. But, Billy, did several he, people in the chat already saying that John Walsh should know better. They recognize that, and I don't know uh, what his thinking was when he uh, he actually asked two kind of stupid questions. Same thing, really. Uh, whether or not the uh, coroner believed that uh, Brian was responsible for the murder completely out of the realm of the coroner's uh, purview uh, regarding an autopsy. You know, I mean, uh, unless he found a film in her pocket of the murder, you know, how could he know something like yeah, that? Ridiculous. John yeah. Pellucci. I just, uh, D D Detective Sergeant John Pellucci, NYPD crime scene unit, probably the best crime scene unit in the nation by far. And I don't say Agreed. that loosely. Because first of all, you guys go to more crime scenes than probably any other crime scene unit on this earth. So when they talk about other crime scene units as the best, I believe you guys are the best. So having said that, let's baffle our audience with your knowledge. And I, I want to ask now, what are some of the things they're going to be looking for in a, uh, a cause of death of strangulation? Tell us what they're going to be looking for. Well, see, here's, here's where we run into problems. You know, this isn't a stranger incident, right? Uh, so strangulation is helpful because uh, if, if it was blunt force, put it this way, that, that last question I was asked, is there any other bruising on the body or anything like that, right? Think about being out in the wilderness and wearing shorts and hiking and climbing up rocks and going through brush and all that stuff. What, what was related to the homicide and what was related to just the kind of stuff you're going to encounter while you're out there in the wilderness? You know, I think obviously if something shows signs of healing, then they can sort of... Uh, Say it's not contemporaneous to the to the uh, incident of death, you know. Uh, but 
there's going to be stuff that's that's going to be on the body that that is a part of hiking or, or can be explained as being a part of hiking. As you guys know, what's exciting about this, this feels like being back at work. You know, it's like so the squad, the homicide squad's calling forensics and saying, we just got some new information. Let's revisit our analysis strategy. Right. Uh, and as you guys know so well, when when you have a familiarity case like this, uh, familial or boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, whatever, it's so hard to prove anything. I mean, go go back and look at the preppy murder case, right? Uh, where it's you know strangulation was part of a ritual for them. There's all this uh, uh, autoerotic asphyxiation. John, John, just let our audience is from all over the world. They oh. don't know the preppy murder case. The preppy murder case was a famous case in, I believe it was the late 80s, yeah. where a preppy kid from the Upper East Side murdered a girl uh, named Jennifer Levin. Right. And the her, her def, his defense was she died during rough sex. Uh, so that I just want our audience to know what you're talking about. Yeah, so essentially uh, like autoerotic asphyxiation, right? Uh, could this, well, could it actually be an accident, you know? Um, there, th things like that, if that's a regular practice of theirs, if they've gone through the house where the two of them lived, they might find ligatures that, it, you know, like, cause people don't want to walk around with marks around their neck. Right. So they, they get like the fur line ligatures or whatever they do. Uh, so if you find other evidence of this in the house, that could kind of corroborate this guy making a claim that this is, this was an accident. Well, well, John, they were traveling the country in a van. Yeah, so it, and it, 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 something could be in the van, but let's talk about asphyxia from a pathological, but what the pathologist may find. Could he still, even though the body was potentially out there for 23 to 24 days, could he have still found bruising around the neck? Could he have found the hyoid bone broken, which is a, you know, asphyxiation 101 sign of strangulation of a broken hyoid bone? So could he have still found those things after this amount of time? Uh, I would, I would, you know, the whole thing is it's it's very hard for me to answer. We're talking about a totally different climate uh, setup than we, what we had in New York. Uh, how a body is in a in a much hotter, drier climate than than versus New York. Uh, so I'm not really the the person who can answer that. I don't, I don't really have that. And the 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 broken hyoid bone. Um, uh, that is not always, you know lack of a broken hyoid bone is not always an indicator that this wasn't a strangulation wasn't a homicide by strangulation right it doesn't always it, it doesn't always uh fracture in those types of incidents um you know of course you might have uh petechial uh hemorrhaging at some of the mucous membranes in the eyes and the lips and stuff like that it depends on how like does that environment actually preserve this evidence or does it cause it to uh rapid more rapidly degrade so now a body because uh, you know when you, you put the body in a in a cool environment it's going to retard the uh, post-mortem artifacts at the rate of decomposition so now if it's a, in a hotter environment is it going to accelerate it to the point where now we're going to have decomposition to the point where it's very hard to tell these things i believe that they would still have enough evidence if he's making this call he's basing it on something and you know, i'm sure it's uh much more than uh you know, maybe a fractured hyoid bone or something like that. Also, you have to uh, consider what is there out there as far as uh, animal scatter. Are there, are there, other, you know, some sort of uh, 
animals that get involved and, and uh, do some damage to the body as well, stuff like that. So it's out in the wilderness. Any, anything can happen out there. We don't know. Was it in the shade? Was it in, uh, you know, wooded area? Um, I'm going to confess to not knowing much about the case. I haven't, I haven't been following it. Well, we, we brought you on for your crime scene knowledge, but let me just yeah. toss this for, to Phil Grimaldi for a second. Phil, uh, earlier on uh, in the weeks before this, uh, we had predicted that the cause of death was going to be strangulation. And one of the reasons that, that I, I believe you and I both uh, thought that this was going to come back as the cause of death was because of Brian's personality. He doesn't come across as a tough guy. Uh, she's small and slight. To me, it just made sense that if, if he, in fact, was the killer, that was going to be uh, the cause of death, the method that he used to kill her. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think you're right on point there, Bill, because uh, it, obviously it sounds like a crime of passion. They were involved in that dispute on the uh, on the on the 12th of August that the police uh, they had an interdiction with the, the police there in Moab, Utah. And, you know, the, basically what we know from that incident was there was some slapping back and forth. And he doesn't look like a big bruising type guy. Uh, there, there may have been a struggle if he actually um, did strangle her. So I would be looking for, if I was, uh, you know, uh, working with the Carmen on that, to look under the fingernails. Obviously, it's done uh, pretty routinely with homicides of this nature. But uh, the reason I'd really be concentrating on that is that uh, those areas might be protected from the elements. Now, uh, John brought up the weather. The weather there at that time of the year, it could be pretty warm in the day and it gets really cool at night. So that accelerating of the body by the heat of, of the decomposition of the body by the heat happens in the day and then it cools down at night, which would slow it down. So there may be a good chance that uh, there might be some DNA under the fingernails that might come back to Brian or whoever it was that strangled her. We're all focusing in on Brian. Obviously, it's it seems obvious that he would be the first suspect. And um, maybe there's marks on the neck. There might be defensive wounds on the hand. Now, John brought up a really good point about what they've been doing for the last almost two months before the murder occurred. There might be scratches and bruises from going on the rocks and going into the water and you scratch your knee or whatever. But I think that specifically on the hands of Gabby Petito is going to be very important because there could be defensive wounds. I mean, if someone's strangling, it's just, uh, it's reaction. It's, 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 it, you know, you're, you're going to fight back, uh, especially when you feel that you can't breathe that causes you to go into a panic. You know, you know, and, Phil, let me just stop you for one second. Sure. One of the things that's common with a strangulation, especially if someone puts their hands around your neck, yeah, the, right. the victim will put fingernail marks on her own neck Trying right. to pry the hands off her neck of the assailant, so right. that that is another sign. Also, the thumb, if if it's manual strangulation by the hands, usually leaves a big bruise mark on right. the neck. So these are all indicators, but all of this can be exacerbated by the fact that the body was out in the elements from anywhere from three to four weeks. Yeah, I think. Yeah. I, go ahead, John. Go ahead. I, I think the scene would would. Uh, possibly provide some good information too. You know, was this was this a campsite where they were at? You know, yeah. John, that's why I brought you on the show. I want you to talk about the crime scene. We brought a crime scene expert on the show for this. Yeah. <laughs> Let me give John a little backup because I did see on uh, uh, 
Dr. Phil show, uh, uh, the stepfather described the scene and they took a camera and they went to the actual scene. He actually erected a small monument near where her body was found, actually in the exact spot that it was found. And he described the scene. And with the camera, you could see there was the area from where the van was parked to where the body was found was about 200, 250 yards. He said it was a five to 10 minute walk. And he actually, with the camera, they showed the path that would be taken. They had to go over some, uh, like a stream and there was some logs so you could get over it without getting your feet wet and stuff. So at the exact location, real quick, I'll just give it to you. Uh, he described it as he believed there might have been a tent there at one time. There was scorched earth at the feet where her bot where her at the feet of her where her body was placed. He he asked the FBI investigators where her torso was, where her head was, and where her head was, he placed a flower on this makeshift memorial where the cross is at the top of the cross where let's say the head would be of the of, of the cross. So that gives you an idea, John. I, I guess you could take it from there uh, as regarding the area. It was kind of um, secreted. It wasn't out in the open. And he made, he stressed the fact that he thought it was not a well-traveled area. However, he do, he could see placing a tent there, having a campfire it would be a perfect site because there was the ridge of the mountains in the, in the foreground. And so that'll give you a better idea of uh, what we're talking about, John. Okay. So when you said with the, uh, the burnt ground, is that uh, indication that they had like a campfire there? Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so maybe that's the, the romantic setting where you, uh, you know, engage in, in, in the, uh, autoerotic asphyxiation type of, uh, sexual activities, right? That, that, that gives us more, more problems as far as them being a couple, right? So like you mentioned, Phil, the, 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 uh, DNA under the fingernails, right. Might be well-preserved, but then again, it's also easily explained. Everything is easily explained. Her blood in that camper is easily explained. Her blood at that she lived there. They were, you know, like there's so many things that could have happened. Yeah. Uh, so, so this guy's got a lot of uh, a lot of loopholes that he can jump through. You know, I think one of the things we might want to look at are the garments, right? Were, were the garments torn in a manner that that indicates a struggle or something like that? Something more than, uh, you know, to make it harder and harder for this guy to keep explaining it. After a while, there's so many, you're just going to run out of excuses. You know? Billy brought up a good point, though, how when a victim is being strangled, they try to release whatever it is that's around their neck. So yeah. you might have a combination of his DNA and her DNA. I think uh, we're getting like into the prosecution part of it. Uh, you have to explain that. But if there's, I, I, I don't know how you could explain his DNA being on the fingernails, unless you say the fight from the 12th, maybe there was then, and then that would say that she didn't wash or clean her fingernails for that whole period of time. But I mean, it leaves a little bit of area of doubt, I guess. But if you have both of those combination of, of DNA as hers, as well as his, I mean, and then you have defensive marks on the hands, I'm, I'm sure a strong examination of her hands was done as well as our whole body. I mean, they listed a, a whole body CT scan, forensic pathologist exam and anthropologist exam, forensic anthropologist exam, as well as toxicology. They said she wasn't pregnant. Uh, they're probably Billy and I both discussed a rape kit uh, just, you know, to uh, put that out there to see if there was any uh, foreign DNA from someone else, let's say. So I, all of those things were done and they held the body specifically. I believe the body's being rele released today. So, uh, the, the, the medical examiner, uh, 
Brent Blue said that the body was being sent to the local mortuary for the family to recover the remains. So they kept the body an exorbitant amount of time, and I'm sure that they did extensive uh, examination of her remains. Yeah, you know, one thing that you guys were great for, and uh, and we, I don't, I don't believe that this happened in in this case. Was uh, there's there's another body involved, right? What about him? What about injuries to him? Is there anything on on him that would indicate that he was that he was in a struggle like that, like a violent struggle? Well, you know, John, the problem was um, he drove home uh, from Wyoming in her van. We believe he may have left left on the twenty seventh or the twenty eighth of August, and he immediately got home and lawyered right up. And so, no one has been able to interview him, speak to him. The families uh, invoke counsel. So that has exacerbated uh, the case for law enforcement, and then he disappeared. Right. So that's that's what I'm. That's what has made this case very very difficult. I'm just going to play a short video from Barbara Butcher, who is the retired um, uh, chief um, of the uh, New York City Office of the Chief Medical Examiner, the chief of staff. I want to just show what she had to say uh, about a week ago on Duty Ron's show, and. Uh, this is going to be Barbara Butcher. No facilities. It's not a place where you just pitch a tent and get water, showers, or electricity. This is very, very remote area, um, very wild area. Now, uh, you know, after 21 days, you know, we all understand the, the nature of decomposition. Um, and... In addition, being a wild area, there are uh, bobcats, cougars, uh, all kinds of vermin. And, you know, you have to be realistic about what kind of remains you'll be looking for. Um, and the big challenge is to not just find those remains, but to find all the remains. Uh, you mentioned that the medical examiner's office had gone back a second time to the site, and that's most likely because they may have found that they were missing uh, a, a bone or uh, you know, such, and, and went back to see if they could find everything. Um, I mean, that's just the, the realistic, uh, likely scenario here. Um, I don't know exactly what her remains looked like, but after 21 days in the wilderness. Yeah. It, it, it's, um, you know, a lot of people were talking about it in chat rooms that I was monitoring and things that I was seeing. Um, you know, we spoke about how the lead FBI, uh, the, the lead agent in charge, before the body was removed and brought to the coroner, he gave his condolences to the Petito family, to the Schmidt family. Um, I was a little taken back by that, but once I thought about it for a few moments, I said, you know, there could be many variables that came into play there. Um, have you ever seen that go on in um, your time where uh, uh, condolences are given to a family? And if so, uh, what are some of the identifying uh, marks that could be on a human body as such as a 22-year-old girl who has been out there in the elements for a good 20, 25 days. Um, what could they have seen to give them that positive idea? You know, uh, you, you're right, Ron. It, it's it's not 
really correct to give condolences to a family until a positive, I mean positive, identification is made. And a positive identification is not just viewing the body, because people can make mistakes, but uh, DNA, fingerprints, or forensic odontology, where they compare dental records to the teeth that remain. Um, that's a really good way to identify people because it's so unique uh, what work you may have had done. But of course, you have to know who you're looking at in order to get their dental records. I just wanted to uh, to go, that's Barbara Butcher, the um, former chief of staff of the New York City Office of the Chief Medical Examiner. I think one of the foremost experts on uh, death investigation probably in the country. And she was on Duty Ron's show uh, a couple of days, about a week ago. And a, a brilliant, uh, when, when it comes out of her mouth, I take it as, uh, as gospel. But so, you, uh, John, you could see the crime scene, what it looked like. Yeah. Could they have been camping down by the crime scene? And this occurred in the, the murder and the campsite were uh, analogous to each other. But the van that they were driving in was about 250 yards from the crime scene. So a lot of these questions, we, we won't know the answer till, till in fact, there is a trial or someone's arrested and this, this case goes to trial. And then we'll, right. we'll know the intimate uh, findings of the investigation. Yeah. I, did, I just want to say real quick, you know, Barbara and, and, and Ed Wallace, just top, top dogs in, in this field. Really fantastic. Uh, you, can't be, you can't beat them, you know. Um, so yeah. So now Phil, you said a forensic anthropologist was brought in. Is that right? So yes. that, that seems to corroborate what Barbara was saying, what I mentioned earlier about animal scatter and stuff. Sure. Like that. If you look, uh, I, I, I was out at the body farm and took a course out there. Some bones look like pebbles, you know, especially, you know, like, uh, some of the, uh, metacarpal bones and, and, uh, you know, a forensic anthropologist, or it could be other animals and stuff like that. So, a forensic anthropologist might be an indicator that we do have some sort of animal scatter going on because sure. you know, animals will take pieces of the body and run off into the woods and and eat the meat off of it, and then then there's bones out there. Uh, bones. So I don't know if they did any nighttime searches. You know, we always want to do a daytime search. You know, some case like that, you might want to do a nighttime search. There's a uh, alternate light source in, in the uh, ultraviolet uh, frequencies causes bone to fluoresce. So if you have a bone mixed in with a bunch of twigs and pebbles and stuff like that, the bone's going to fluoresce. So it might give you a better, uh, you know, it's a, it's a better way to narrow down when you have this much evidence to get it. Down. Hope the FBI is listening to that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's another story, right? So, uh, <laughs> well, how come they always sense the love from the NYPD towards the FBI? There's so, there's so I didn't much mean love. Anything bad by that. I <laughs> hope they're listening and, and did exactly what he just said. I mean, come on. Yeah. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. You, you'd easily pass over something like a piece of bone, like he said. It could be a size of a pebble during the day. So you go in there at night with a fluorescent light and it might, you know, brighten up and, and it might pop and you'll recover it. Now, Chances are they did that. I was just throwing that out there. I hope right. that they were listening to that. Yeah. 100%. You know, John, one of the things that uh, a lot of people don't realize is that with the autopsy uh, and, and now the cause of death, they still have to marry the crime scene with the cause of death and see if there's any commonalities in there that can explain, for example, were there drag marks? Was the body dragged to the location? You know, 
was yeah. there. You know, you guys talk about depressed footprints, you know, uh, the bottom of someone's shoe. Were, were there shoe, uh, shoe prints? And we talk about individual characteristics and class characteristics. Uh, you know, in uh, class, of course, the, I'll explain it simple. The bottom of an Adidas sneaker is a certain pattern from the manufacturer. But the way John Pellucci wears his sneakers, he wears them off to the left. So that's an individual characteristic. Did those things exist at the crime scene? You want to speak upon that? Yeah, that's, that's a really great point, right? But but once again, we're going to come back to he has legitimate access to everything, right? So if, if we can uh, say we got his sneakers and we find his footprints there, and it's like, so what? You know, like say, say you know, the class characteristics, it's a Adidas size panel. And now we have, uh, you know, the guy must have stepped on some glass because there's a big ridge cut through the middle of the tread pattern. And and we found that sneaker that matches that footprint in his uh, in his closet. And, you know, his defense is going to say, so what? You know, yeah, he was there. This is why, you know, what I loved about working with, with you guys was uh, was the chance to knock theories around, you know, because that's that's how we would, you know, gain a lot of ground. We start working off the more. The more you know, John, can I just stop you for one second? Yeah. That, yeah, that, was that, a, was that was a brilliant point that you made. And usually we would um, basically impeach the person's um, claim of that by doing an interview. But in this case, yeah. there's not going to be an interview because he lawyered up. For example, <laughs> one of the things we would say, have you ever been to this area over here yeah. in your entire life? Have you ever been there? And you right. show him pictures. You maybe take them there. No, I've never been here before. Okay, thank you. And you know that you got his footprints there of yeah. his sneakers that you vouched. But there's not going to be an interview in this case right. because he invoked counsel. So we cannot. Yeah, but how how they would get it in at a trial, the, the, the defense attorney could bring it up in his open or his summation. But the real way to get it in would be to put the defendant on the stand and then he could be cross-examined. Now that's a very risky thing and a tricky thing, but I think with enough circumstantial evidence, like I think this is where Billy was going with enough circumstantial evidence. Like, yeah, he, he, his story is going to be, his lawyer might throw it out there or he may testify and say, well, I was there, but I left her and this must've happened after I left. That's why my footprint was there. That's why my DNA was there. This and that. Okay. But at the, at the end of the day, with all the other circumstantial evidence, you have to get a jury to believe it beyond a reasonable doubt. And I think that that's key, beyond a reasonable doubt. And if you have enough of these little pieces of circumstantial evidence, and then you could have real evidence, you know, the stuff under the fingernails we talked about. And then going back to one last thing, we talked about marks on him. He's not around for an interview or an examination. 100% correct, Billy. But he was along his trip. When he left that area, he stopped at gas stations. I think he may have stopped at a Chick-fil-A when he used her, her credit card or whatever. There may be video that might be worth looking at to see if he had a scratch on his face or a mark on his neck. And then those things might not, depending, you know, if someone's strangling you and you scratch their face in a defensive way, if he's captured soon, there may still be marks that, you know, aren't 100% healed. And sometimes a, a deep scratch in your face may leave a scar. And if, you know, an examination is done and they can say, well, this scratch or scar happened, what we believe in the last couple of weeks, that also is another piece of circumstantial evidence that might convince a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. 
You know, yes. John, uh, John, one of the things that you said when you brought up the preppy murder trial, which I tried to uh, tell everyone here what it was about. And back in, in 1980, when the, the attorney for Robert Chambers brought up that defense, that rough sex defense, everyone was like, you got to be kidding me. That's a joke, blah, 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 blah. Then it was the, the danger was that there was going to be a hung jury. So both sides got together. The defense thought they were getting convicted, and the prosecution thought they were, there was going to be an acquittal. So they all met at the very the one minute left in the fourth quarter, and he agreed to take a plea to manslaughter first degree. Hmm. So in essence, he was sentenced to five to 15 years, and he did the full 15 years because yeah. he was a dirtbag in prison. He turned out to be a dirtbag even after he got out of prison. Yeah, I, think, I think he's doing life right now for A1 a drug sales. Right, right. But yeah. that defense, when you brought up that defense in this case, I wanted to strangle you. But <laughs> but the point is, is that he can use any defense he wants because no one from law enforcement had, has had a chance to interview this guy. Well, here, here's one thing that could, that, that could lay him out, right? Uh, what if this was a ligature strangulation? And they find a ligature there. So, you know, think about camping, right? You got ligatures all over the place. You're using ropes and all kinds of things, you know, hiking, climbing and all that stuff. Uh, you know, so so ligatures are available, right? So say he used one and, and, and ditched it there. That, that could be something else that, that could be a nail in his coffin. Let's throw out a theory about a third person, right? They're, 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 like nobody seems to be thinking about that. Right. Uh, well, no, no. We've had Joe Murray on the show. He's raised every possible defense oh, there yeah. is. <laughs> there you go, yeah. Mickey, Mickey Mantle from England. Thank you so much for the $10 super chat. Someone else had a super chat and had a question. Olivia Barry. Thank you for the $5 super chat. Your question is, could they not tell by the surveillance and the M piglet what Gabby was wearing on the 27th to what clothes she died in? Just to rule that out, uh, rule that out that day. Yes, they could. And I'm sure that they did use the video surveillance if, in fact, they had it at that restaurant where they had to dispute on the same day that we believe she potentially was murdered, which was August 27th. They also noted uh, that there was a specific sweatshirt, I believe it was, that was found on the body. This is what led them to uh, go quickly with the, uh, the the press conference and say that they believed it was Gabby Petito. There was, a, a I think it was a local monogram or whatever it was on the t uh, sweatshirt that uh, led them to believe that it was her. Uh, she owned that particular sweatshirt. And I guess all well, the physical characteristics fit on the remains that were found. So that's what led them to, to believe that. And, um, you know, the third party, I, I, I'm okay with saying, you know, entertaining that there could be a third party involved, whether, you know, he left, came back, she was with another guy, whatever. That's all quite possible. But, He's making himself look so guilty by not coming forward and say, hey, wait a second. I was out of the picture. It's somebody else. He's on the run. And yeah. his family's invoked counsel and all the other things that they did. You know, they, they went and bought this camper when, they, when he got back to Florida. I mean, they ignored. And I've stressed this in numerous other podcasts that we did. They ignored telephone calls, text messages. They tried to reach that family, Gabby's family. On numerous occasions, they called everyone they knew and they were met with no response. And that's just, you know, that's screaming where it's got something to hide. It's screaming yeah. that, you know. 100%. You know, Maribel Lopez, a great question. 
Why would the parents prevent him from speaking and a lawyer hired as soon as the police came? Exactly. He, he had to tell them as he was driving home in her van with exactly. her cards. The parents know everything. Maribel, we 100% agree with you. Great we, instincts, Maribel. We have, we have Joe Murray, who's a defense attorney, whose job and life is to create doubt. We have John Pellucci here, who's been to so many trials that he tries to anticipate what a defense attorney is going to do. So he tries to collect the evidence to thwart that doubt that a defense attorney is going to try to create down the road. Well, Thoughts on that, John? Yeah. So, well, here's the thing. That, so the third guy theory uh, is pretty much worthless if there's no corroborating physical evidence, right? So somebody else there is going to, you know, low cards exchange principle, every contact leaves a trace, right? So when I leave this room, I'm taking some of this room with me. And some of me is staying behind in this room, you know, especially now that the hair's not staying and sticking on my head that I get used to, you know. So, uh, so the third guy, what if there is evidence of a third guy, right? Then th th he could still have the, you know, listen, I was embarrassed. You know how some of these guys that roam around in the woods, like, hey, you, you stand there and watch me do this to her and all that stuff. You know, listen, I was embarrassed. And uh, so, so the third guy, uh, you brought up something really good, Phil, the sweatshirt, right? So now we talk about uh, the uh, ambient, the environmental conditions out there. Uh, hot as blazes during the day and cold at night. So the sweatshirt gives us maybe a little bit more look into the uh, into the time of death, right? Was this done, was this at night when she passed away? Because she's wearing a sweatshirt, which she wouldn't be wearing during the day, right? So you got the good point. Good yeah, point. Right, sweatshirt, the campfire, uh, you know those, those types of things. Sure. You know, the one of the things that the coroner said also, and I think that there was probably a power struggle between the coroner and the FBI. Clearly, I don't think the FBI wanted the cause of death released ever until an arrest is made or perhaps uh, until they make an arrest and take it to trial. However, I think maybe the coroner overruled the FBI and he got the uh, got the cause of death released. He also mentioned in his brief uh, words that why did it take so long, one of the reporters asked, why did it take four to five weeks to uh, come back with the cause of death? And the answer is it didn't. But he, there was, I believe there was some headbutting between the coroner and the FBI, and he mentioned that they wanted to have all the experts come in on an autopsy. I don't know any autopsy anywhere in any major city where they bring experts in. Uh, I think the, the coroners or the pathologists in that city do the complete workup. The other thing, waiting for the uh, toxicology come back, it's not necessary to wait for the toxicology to come back to come back with a cause of death, especially that it was strangulation. Yeah, good point. You know, uh, how many times have we had these jurisdictional headbutting kind of deals? You know, uh, where but but who's Whose is it really, right? So as far as far as we know, we have a crime of murder, right? And that crime of murder was was committed in that county where that coroner is, is is the boss of that county, right? Once he starts fleeing to other states, then we have the FBI involved. Is there like a crime spree along the way? I guess he he commits a crime in another. It was another state when he used a credit card. Uh, I'm not really sure. Well, yes, that. he had used an access device on his route driving the van home from Wyoming. But the other thing is that. The FBI could have grabbed the jurisdiction also because Wyoming 
the Teton National Park federal property. is a federal oh, property. I got you. So, yeah. um, I mean, usually, you know, we're a large, NYPD is a large police department. We don't think of the FBI as investigating homicides. That's usually not what they do. So yeah. we would, if if this occurred in New York City, I think the FBI would bow out rather quickly. Uh, but maybe in a small jurisdiction like Wyoming, where they don't get that many uh, murders, the FBI stuck with it and grabbed jurisdictional, uh, you know, especially in, in regards to that access device and potentially a fleeing felon into state that screams of a federal charge. Yeah. I mean, the, F the FBI is like a great partner to have on these investigations. You know, I, I worked, uh, I worked on a case in 2004, we were looking for remains of John Gotti's victims, right? There was a, I think somebody was, uh, there was a body found in 1986 or 88 where, uh, and you remember how many homicides there were back then, right? It was like over 2,000 homicides. So crime scene would be able to fit more than one on a roll of film. You just had one job after the other, you know. So, so, so this was just a, a recovered body. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't mean to say it about crime scene fitting more than one on a roll of film. But a case like this is a recovered body, clandestine grave. Boom, you got, you got a body, you, you, you know, uh, and that's it. So apparently uh, there was an informant that came that came back years later and said, like, uh, you know, underneath that body, there were two more bodies. And one of them was his neighbor that disappeared. Right. So so we were out there. Crime scene was out there working with the FBI. We were working jointly with the FBI, you know, uh, with their evidence response team. So so they have a lot, especially it, it, it depends. I'm not I'm not sure how well equipped uh, the laboratories are in Wyoming. There's certain analyses that that uh, do get and probably should get farmed out to the FBI. You know, they have a lot of good equipment to do things. So working in conjunction with them is a good thing. But sometimes you do get into these territorial disputes, you know, and it gets it gets to be problematic. Like New York City, we could we could, uh, you know, we could handle our own, you know, and we we always did. So uh, I know there's been instances where we've uh, Remember, there was a Times, there was a Times Square where we had the Times Square bomber, and then we also had uh, uh, the police station. I think it wasn't at Times Square. There was a device that was detonated outside the, the uh, Times Square police station. So those yes. were some other uh, joint operations. That was the guy on the bike, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And the bike was dumped uh, down in a dumpster some someplace further further south, I guess. Yeah. And uh, yeah, because I was managing all the DNA evidence back then. And we wanted it, you know, it was, it was uh, you know, it was our case. Uh, and so we wanted to do the analysis, but the FBI also wanted to do the analysis. And so, uh, you know, there were fights going on way above my head when it, when it came to that case, but these things can get, you know, a little contentious sometimes. The, the FBI is got, I've always said it, they've got deep pockets. When you do any kind of uh, telephone work and stuff like that, they can get it expedited. Uh, you know, a lot of times the budgets with the police department and the DA's office, uh, they didn't want to spend money on uh, telephone dumps and cell phone tower dumps and things like that. FBI right away, they boom, boom, boom. The U.S. attorney writes it up quick and they get it for you. So there, there's definitely a need to have them involved in, in certain investigations. And I'm sure that in this investigation, the cell phone activity is going to be very important because he cannot say I wasn't in 
uh, that area, if his cell phone is pinging, you know, we're going to have a general, she was last seen alive on the 27th in the evening at that piglet restaurant when they had the argument and they were asked to leave the restaurant. And then he's back in Florida on the first. So there's a, a time frame there. And, you know, uh, we have the, uh, the van being, uh, the other people, the Bethunes that videotaped the van. So we have a pretty good idea of when the murder actually took place, probably 27th into the 28th is my estimation. So if his cell phone, cell phone was pinged, in and around that location be very difficult to say he wasn't there now again like you said there's going to be a defense attorney that might say well of course he was there you know but it all happened after he left because they're not going to be able to say it happened at 11 23 p.m they're going to say an approximate they said three to four weeks what was the time of death so we know she was alive up until the 27th that was the last time she was seen or heard from and then it would have to be after that would be the time frame that we believe the the homicide took place you know there's uh john there's guy I'm, I'm sorry john go ahead i was just gonna ask real quick uh what, what do we have that tells us that the van was parked in a certain location was there tire tracks or something like that or no, Bill, Bill, you want to, the, the Bethunes, there was a, a family that did, uh, they did like a travel podcast where they would go on this uh, journeys oh, yeah. and, and they actually came home from their trip and they saw on social media that uh, there was like, uh, check your video if you were in this area around this time all regards to Gabby Petito. She went through the video with her husband and then they found the white van. And the reason they knew it was the exact van because they had the video from the 12th when they had the police interaction uh, on the dispute, the day of the dispute, August the 12th. And in the front dashboard of the, uh, of the van was a hat and it had Florida plates and that's how they knew that it was van. They, and then they, from their uh, uncovering of that video, that put the searchers into that area and the body was found, I believe, within a day and a half of them coming forward with the video. Yeah. You know, I just wanted a lot of people uh, want to talk about the, um, and I think it's an important component of this, and there'll have to be a lot more investigation in regards of the domestic violence component of this case. And the more we learn about it, the more we realize there was some, uh, there was a great deal of domestic violence. So I'm going to put on the, uh, video of them getting pulled over by the Moab police, which sort of screams out to us now that now that we know what occurred and I'm going to put it up on the screen and I just screwed this up. Sorry guys. Hello. Let me take that off the screen for a second. I, uh, yeah. Why are you doing that? I just want to, you know, really, you know, let the audience know that, you know, forensics is, is, amazing it's powerful it does so many uh cool things and all that right but as we're seeing now in this investigation without you guys in the squad you could end up with nothing you could have you could have some of the greatest you know like very you know uh good dna profiles good fingerprints you could have all kinds of stuff but without you guys locking in a story right without you guys running the history on this whole thing without all the stuff that you guys do is uh that's what makes the case, you know, and this is the, the forensic part is a tool, you know, it's a, it's a tool that, that assists you guys. But, but you uh, know, John, so much of an investigation is done through interview and interrogation. Yeah. And that part of this case has been thwarted by them invoking counsel very, very early on. I'm going to put this up on the screen right now. We'll take a quick look at this. Um
You want to place your vehicle in the park and go ahead and turn it off for me? Yeah, yeah. No, park? Oh, it, it isn't park yet. Sorry. Okay, turn off your engine. Go ahead and set your keys on the dash for me, all right? What's your guys' names? Gabby. I'm Brian. Gabby, Brian, okay. What's going on? How come you're crying? I'm just crying. We've just been fighting this morning. Some personal issues. It was a long day. We were camping yesterday and camping got the supplies and stuff. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I hit the, the, the bump there. <laughs> I was distracting him from driving. I'm sorry. Can I get you to step out of the vehicle for me, man? Yeah. Just hang tight right there. Um, do you mind if I take your keys and just put them on your hood? You got it, buddy. I'm so Thank sorry. You. Oh, no, you're fine. I wouldn't have done that. I'm going to go ahead and close your door. Okay. Why don't you come over here? SO229, I have the female that was on the passenger seat separated from the male. Keys are on the hood. You want to tell me what's going on? Yeah, I don't know. It's just sometimes I have really bad OCD, and okay. I just I was just cleaning and straightening up back of the before, and I was apologizing to him and saying, "I'm sorry that I'm so mean because sometimes I have OCD, and sometimes I just get really frustrated, not like mean towards him. I just like I guess my vibe is like I." I'm like in a bad mood. And I was just saying, I'm sorry if I'm in a bad mood. I've just been really stressed. I had so much work I was doing on my computer this morning. What do you do for a living? Um, well, I, I hate sport getting all organic juice bar, but I just hit my job. Okay. I was a nutritionist. That's, oh, what, okay. that's my that's job. Cool. And I just um, hit my job to travel across the country. And I'm trying to start a blog. Okay. Have a blog. So, so I've been building my website. So I've been really stressed. And, he doesn't really believe that I could do any of it. So that's kind of been like a, I don't know, he's like, a, down there. I don't know, we've just been fighting all morning and and he wouldn't let me in the car before. And Why I, wouldn't he let you in the car? Because you have your OCD? He told me I needed to calm down. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm perfectly calm. I'm calm all the time. And he really stresses me out. And I just, and this is a rough morning. Well. Why don't we do this? Why don't I sit you down in the back seat of my car? You're not in any trouble, okay? <laughs> I'm not going to be putting handcuffs on you. You obviously don't have any weapons. I'm going to get you into the air conditioning, let you take a breath, relax a little bit, and then I'll come back and talk to you in a few minutes, okay? Okay. All righty. Like I said, you're not in any trouble. So just go ahead and take a seat. What's that? Yeah, I just spoke to her. So, you want to do me a favor? Let's go ahead and get you to step out of the vehicle. Alrighty. Come on over here. You're not in any trouble right now. So, tell me what's going on. The shoes gets worked up sometimes, and I try and really distance myself from her. So, like, I, I lock the car and I walk away from her. But what happened this morning is that she's trying to start up like his own little website blog and everything. So, I give her time. And I, we really had a nice morning, if, ever, and if anything, but um, 
she just you know worked up because we were trying to get going and get our day going because we want to go um like guards and something like that okay you want to tell me about those scratches on your face she had itself on her hand that's why i was pushing her away because i she, she wanted me i locked the keys so i could walk away I, I said let's just take a breather and let's not you know go anywhere let's just calm down for a minute because she's getting worked up and then she had her phone and trying to get the keys so she got away i was just trying to I know I shouldn't push, but I was just trying to push her away to go, let's, let's just take a minute, step back and breathe. And we see if she got me. Can we see your hand? Oh, you got a mark right here. Oh, that's from a wire. That's from a wire? Yeah. You want to tell me about hitting that curb? Hitting the curb was her grabbing the wheel. She grabbed the wheel? Yeah. She said, I can't believe we're getting pulled over. Now, obviously, now it's easy to for everyone to look at this and say, Oh, this is clearly a domestic violence incident. And um, we've analyzed this tape. We've spoke about the, the conduct of the Moab police on whether what they did was correct or incorrect. Many people have weighed in all over the Internet. Uh, and I, I, I definitely feel that there, def there is a domestic violence component to this. And unfortunately, it appears that it ended in a murder of a, of a, young, of a young lady. Yeah, I I, uh, I think that the background we're getting from her friends was that uh, he was very possessive, uh, controlling, that he uh, took her IDs when she was going to go out with her friends to a bar so she couldn't get in the bar. So there's obviously some type of uh, domestic violence component in this. Uh, some people in the chat between last night's show and today's show that they uh, talked about whether or not she was emotionally disturbed. I mean, when you see her right at the beginning of that, she's obviously upset. I don't think there was any indication that she needed uh, a psych evaluation uh, at that point. I just wanted to make that clear. I mean, when you look at it, she was excited. She was crying. She was upset, but she wasn't looking to hurt herself. She didn't indicate anything like that. She wasn't talking about uh, suicidal tendencies, homicidal tendencies, anything like that. So I think that uh, there was no need for that at that point. Um, again, uh, in hindsight, 2020 uh, would uh, uh, arrest in both of them had uh, prevented this. We really don't know. That's probably the only other thing that could be done. And then, uh, uh, Gisela Kirsten, uh, Gisela Kirsten, we had on last night. She brought up a great point that uh, if they had checked on them the next day, because they were they were eventually separated. He went to a hotel. She stayed in a van. And I thought that was a great point. That uh, she brought up two great points actually. One was uh, about checking on them the next day, and she said that uh, when she was in her own, um, uh, I guess it was a domestic violence situation. She said that if someone had said to her, she was actually walking by a police officer when someone was going to uh, eventually assault her, had the police officer said, are you okay? Do you feel safe? I think that was a great point that she point, uh, brought up that, you know, the officers, if they had said to her, uh, do you feel safe, Gabby? Are you in fear? Is anything uh, being with Brian? Are you worried about your safety? If she would said yes, then it would have changed everything, you know. Uh, the question, I mean, I don't know if it was asked, but it doesn't appear that way. So that was uh, two great things that she brought up. Yeah, that's good. Uh, yeah, you know what I noticed? Um, all right, so so she's talking about doing a blog and all this stuff, right? So now there's going to – and he mentioned something about that too. So there's this is where the uh, digital multimedia evidence, the electronic evidence is going to come in. Is this going to corroborate this story or is this just a story that they made up? I noticed she's not really dressed for camping, and I mean, she's 
she's got a lot of jewelry on. She's got two necklaces. She's got multiple rings on, bracelet, uh, you know, not the kind of stuff you want to be out there climbing on rocks with some that's, you have the potential to lose those things out there, right? Um, so the, my question is, how did the police end up actually come in contact with them? Was it was that? Yeah, well, yeah, they got a call from a 911 caller, and we weren't aware of this at first that they saw him smack her. So they were actually responding to a potential assault or a domestic violence incident. Uh, so initially, they were actually pulled pulled over down the road, like three miles back from where they had come from when they were pulled over. And there was a uh, was actually two nine one one callers, I believe. We only heard from one, but uh, there was actually two. Yeah, they they saw that there was some type of a uh, dispute in the street. Uh, she was trying to get back in the van. She was actually trying to climb through the driver's side of the van, and I guess that's when he was allegedly smacking her. So that's what uh, initiated the the nine one one call. And uh, that's how the police got involved in the uh, interaction that day on the 12th, August the 12th. That's interesting. Him locking her out of the van and then him staying in the hotel and, and her staying in the van. Right. So you seem you see like a little pattern of, uh, you know. Well, the van was registered to her. And I think the police came up with the idea. They actually called ahead to a hotel. They, they suggested it, I would imagine. They called ahead to a hotel. They got him checked into the hotel. She stood with the van and they must have hooked up obviously the next day. And uh, Gisela, I always mention her name the wrong way. I don't pronounce it right. Gisela had said uh, the one thing she came up with, and I thought it was a pretty good idea. Maybe the police should have did a welfare check the next day. That might've, you know, that might've put a, a seed in the back of his head. Oh, you know, not only did they interact with me yesterday night, they're checking on me, you know, who knows if maybe she would have reached out to her family by that point, or they might've headed home. Uh, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know what could have possibly prevented this, but uh, just thinking about it for the future, if there's other interactions by police officers anywhere in the, the country or in the world for that matter, uh, to go that extra step, it looks like these officers, we stressed that Bill and I in the past, they really went above and beyond. In New York City, they would have gotten probably 10 minutes of uh, the officer's time because there's just so many calls going on. But it uh, looks like they did, you know, what they uh, did, due diligence, as they say. Yeah. Exactly. Amber Marie, uh, she has a question. Would this strangulation be enough for circumstantial evidence and would they be able to issue an arrest warrant with that? I believe that the police now have enough to issue an arrest warrant based on circumstantial evidence that uh, Brian Laundry is a suspect. What you need, of course, for an arrest warrant is something called probable cause. Yes. So I believe based on circumstantial evidence, yes, I believe they do have it. Folks, if you're not subscribed to Police Off the Cuff, please go to our YouTube, hit the subscribe button, ring that bell, give us a thumbs up. Uh, we, we're um, building our channel and we appreciate all you guys that uh, subscribe. I call you guys our fans. Other people don't like that. They want to be called a subscriber. You're still our fans. <laughs> anyway, uh, so, yeah, there's some a lot, uh, very good questions in this. Uh, was this a domestic violence incident? You know, I, I believe 100% it is now. And when we look at the case, of course, through um, 2020 hindsight, everyone – uh, believes that they there should have been an arrest at that scene on August 12th. My question is an arrest of who? And the way I would have, if I was called to that scene, knowing what I know now and being a sergeant, I would have arrested both of them. But would that arrest have prevented the murder down the road? We don't know that. 
know. Yeah. It was the police that put him in a hotel? Yes. Yeah, they actually drove him over to a local hotel. They called ahead first. They, they must have uh, suggested it. He agreed. She agreed that they were going to separate. So they really, like, you know, they really... I mean, that's police science 101 to separate the two uh, combatants. And they actually separated them for the night. They put him in the hotel. They must have had her go to a location and stay in the van overnight. That must have been what they decided to do. But, yeah, there's there's further video of that uh, body cam video of them driving Brian to the hotel. They introduce him to the hotel uh, clerk that they spoke with over the phone. They asked for the guy, are you so-and-so? Yeah, this is Brian Laundry. He's going to check in, you know, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, they, they actually did that. And again, the, the one more little extra thing they might've been able to do that might've, I don't know if it would have helped or, but uh, in a future case, a welfare check the next day, let's see, maybe they didn't get back together. Maybe they're still here. Just check on them and see where their heads are at, you know, going 24 hours later or the next day, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Phil, you want to give this a read? Sure. Joe Murray, a good friend of police off the cuff, a frequent flyer, as they say. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York City area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. That's jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. That's 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe at jmurray-law.com. You know, a lot of folks in the chat are asking, you know, why isn't there an arrest warrant now for, for murder? There's no um, need at this point. They, right. They don't need it because they have an arrest warrant for uh, unauthorized use of an access device. So if they, when they, if and when they do find him, they can lock him up for that, put him on ice for a while, and then build the build the homicide case, build the murder case, and then if in fact he's they have probable cause, which I feel they do right now, arrest him for the murder and proceed. Then they're in no hurry to drop that uh, arrest warrant because certain legal. Um, Things in the mechanism start rolling once you uh, make the arrest for the murder. Uh, speedy trial, all of that type of stuff. John, comments? Yeah, no, as far uh, well, I just want to say Joe Murray is, is a dynamite guy. You know, you want to talk about a fighter, uh, you know. Good people, Joe. If you're in trouble. You got to love him. You got to fight for you. I mean, forget it. He's yeah. a fight, literally a fighter, too. He's a boxer, you know. So, uh, yes. you know, you, nobody's going to. You know, he, he's going to get his story out there, get your story out there. Yeah, great guy. Um, yeah, so as far as the, the you know, the legalese goes, I'm not really a guy for that. Um, when, like, when Joe comes on our show, he challenges a lot of our theories. And I happen to love it because it keeps us on our toes, so to speak, you know. And last night when I looked at the comments, there was a comment from – a retired sergeant that I worked with in Brooklyn South, Frank Whalen, who was a homicide. So he was a detective. He was a sergeant. He worked in the squad and he eventually was in a homicide squad. And he pointed something out. And I think, John, you touched on it earlier. He said, you know, you guys are doing a great job. You're naturals. He commented me and Bill Cannon. And I, I really took it from someone as a great compliment, you know, coming from his stature as a homicide sergeant in Brooklyn South handled 
hundreds of cases or worked on hundreds of case, cases. But he pointed something out. And I think that this is really key to everything that we're talking about. You know, being in the squad, he goes, it's just like we're in the squad room spitballing the case. And that's really what we do as detectives. We look at interviews. We talk to people. Then when we get back to the office, we put our heads together and we throw out different theories and ideas. And the reason we think this happened or we reason we think that didn't happen or just a lot of different things. And a lot of times that's what's key to solving a murder investigation or any case, perhaps, you know, it doesn't have to be a murder, but when you spitball with other detectives, you throw out scenarios, you're, you know, you're, you're tapping into your experience. And then a guy like you, John, from crime scene. Now I noticed when you looked at that interview, you immediately noticed this is key to crime scene investigators. You said, well, she's got jewelry on. She has this, you right away, you, you assessed what you were looking at on her, just as if you were standing over a body, you would do the same thing. Because I know I worked with crime scene hundreds of times. And when we would get there, we would try to explain to them what we got, what we found, what we'd be looking for. And then they would offer again, spitballing, so to speak. They'd say, well, here's what I'm going to do. I want to do this. And we would offer suggestions, maybe take pictures of that and different things. And I think that that's what your expertise, as well as our expertise, it comes together and it helps us to investigate and come to a, a successful conclusion on any case. I think the question is, where is that stuff now? Where's that jewelry now? Too, right? Was that that's an interesting factor, right. yeah. Right. That pawning stuff on the way back to, you know, uh, or, or whatever. Was it with the body? Was it recovered? Yeah. That other point you brought up about she was dressed like going to the beach almost in the daytime in that August 12 video. And we're talking about possibly a sweatshirt that was local to her surroundings that they believe she owned. So that sweatshirt being on was able to identify her. That may also help uh, decomposition from occurring too as well. Am I correct in that, John? Uh, well, it might accelerate it during the day, you know. Right. True. That's good. Yeah, point. yeah. So, you know, Brittany Yard, I just want to uh, close the door on this. And I, a lot of folks in the chat have asked this. I think they haven't yeah. upgraded it to murder in hopes that he may talk. He cannot talk. He invoked counsel. He can never be interviewed. I've said this ad nauseum all over the time. The only way he could ever talk now is if attorney and prosecution agrees to do something called the proffer. Right. And that's the only way he could talk. Other than that, he is not allowed to be interviewed by law enforcement. He invoked counsel. And I'm sorry if I sound. Uh, no, you make it a great point, Bill, because you know, the only way that he could talk now is, is to waive his right to, to immunity and say, yeah, I want to plead guilty to it. I want to tell you what happened. And his, his lawyer is never going to let him do that, obviously. I mean, that's out of the realm. And like you said, unless maybe they could strike some kind of a deal, you know, you're facing a death penalty or you're faced in life without parole, but we'll give you a chance, you know, uh, plead guilty. I don't see that happening. There's probably 10 attorneys knocking on the door to handle this case in a defense mode. Just uh, probably, I, I don't know if they're as good as Joe Murray, but probably on the same lines as a Joe Murray and the things that he brought up. So it's not, that's not going to happen is the point. Uh, Kelly Delmonico, uh, like John said, she was wearing her sweatshirt. So it was probably at night when she was killed. Then he had plenty of time to concoct a story about what happened to her before he pulled away. It's possible that Gabby's body was laying there dead when the Bethunes drove by in their white van. Like the Bethunes said, they didn't see any particular reason to stay in that area. Nothing really extraordinary to see there. Gabby and Brian probably chose that spot just to camp out for the night. That's an interesting uh, 
hypothesis. Yeah. We don't know if it's true or not, but it it makes sense. You know, Definitely it's a great tool. Sense. I know you guys must have done this dozens or hundreds of times, uh, and then your viewers could do this. Uh, one, one really fantastic tool in, in a murder investigation is a timeline, right? So now, like, like, and and it could people at home could be doing this, right? Like, uh, if you get a piece of information, say there's a phone call made, you know, with a ping and this and that, start putting these these things together, right? And uh, then look for anomalies, and that's and that's that's when you guys really come in with your interviews. If he's already got a story locked in, which we don't have in this case, but once we start establishing that timeline. Through uh, through witness statements, through facts, through through evidence, uh, you know, digital multimedia evidence and stuff like that. Her being on the computer, uh, we can start to look for anomalies, right? So if she, if she wasn't on the computer all day that day, and they both said that she was on the computer, you know, uh, so but but people at home could do this. What what time? You know, give me a time. What time did these people see the van? All the stuff that happened before before the murder, right? And then even, and then after the murder, and then. Uh, write down a time and then write down the source. Like, is this a witness statement? Is this a credible source? You know, is this, is this something that I, I read in the national Enquirer? you know, but like, where did I get this timeline from? And they could start to put it together and, and uh, start doing their own investigation. You know, you know, John, it's, it's difficult where we're sitting, not being, when we say this all the time, not being privy to the case folder and to the real actual timestamps video that provides timestamps tolls that provide timestamps, other people's video that provide timestamps, times that they were in a restaurant provides timestamps. You're right. Timelines are tremendously important. But when you're doing this from where we're sitting, they're inaccurate, you know, because right. there may be yeah. information out there told and you cannot vet the information 100% because it's, unless it's put out by the police or right. the FBI, I, or it's a video that is obvious I cannot totally trust the information. So I'm saying that's why you'd want to source it. Like, where did I get this timeline from? You know, where, where did I get this this one particular uh, item on my timeline? Where did I get it from? Like you do with, you know, each, each one of these things. So it might be interesting for people to, to start doing that. And it, this is just going to continually evolve, this case, you know. And 100%. You know, we're at uh, about an hour and 10 minutes. So I'm going to give our... Um, I believe our closing last remarks, Phil, I'm going to give it to you first. Any last? Uh... Yeah. First thing and foremost, I just want to offer my condolences again to the Petito family. I can't even imagine what they're going through uh, today. I know that on the news, they said that uh, they wouldn't be making any statements right now. I, I could sympathize with that. Uh, they have to, you know, it's like uh, ripping the, uh, the skin on an open wound and it's starting to heal. And now, uh, you're ripping it open again. Uh, my thoughts and prayers go out to that family. Um, I think we want to keep uh, Brian Laundry in the media that somebody possibly could spot him. Like I said yesterday, possibly going into a bathroom. You might cross paths with him in a 7-Eleven if he's in the country. Um, you know, let's uh, keep his face out there. Keep uh, Gabby's spirit alive. We want justice for Gabby. And we want Brian Laundry brought to justice. John, it was so nice to have you on today and to meet you. Uh, I obviously, uh, I don't remember working with you, but uh, you, you, you brought some terrific uh, expertise and knowledge. And uh, I think we meshed it all together from the crime to the crime scene to the autopsy. And uh, thank you again. Uh, really John, uh, John Pellucci, final thoughts. And also let everyone know the name of your company. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm CSI Experts, Inc. 
and I got a website, csiexpertsinc.com. You could go to. Um, so, yeah, I do a lot of consulting, some training. I'm going out to Chicago and give a lecture at a conference out there next week. And, and you know, keep busy moving around. But I want to say it's an, it's an honor to be with you guys. And 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 it's to me, this is feeling like we're, we're back in the uh, back in the business, you know, because things are unfolding. Here we are talking about it. Things are unfolding. We're, we're putting these ideas out there. Uh, your audience is really sharp, wonderful group of people. Uh, like you said, Phil, the, the uh, Petito family, it's got to be the most unnatural thing to lose a child. Like, they're, they're suffering, you know, and uh, as are many, 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 many other families out there, you know, and we just want to make sure we're doing our best. Everybody's doing their best to uh, bring justice and closure to these things. 100%. I'd also like to uh, reiterate that our, uh, our shout out to the Petito family on the, Losing their daughter is a horrendous thing. And, you know, getting closure. I mean, they may have known about this before today. I don't know. I don't know for sure. But, uh, you know, we try to, when we cover this, these cases, we try to cover them with as much respect as possible. Uh, Phil and I both have worked hundreds of, of homicides. And uh, I can't tell you how many I've seen John Pellucci walking out of homicide crime scenes that you wouldn't. Uh, you wouldn't let a dog walk in. It's that that nasty, you know, 95 degrees, maggots all over the place. And that's the, that's the environment that crime scene technicians work in. I know on TV they show you them wearing a uh, Armani suit and coming in and out of, uh, you know, a crime scene. And uh, that's not the reality of it. It's a really, really difficult, difficult job. And I really – when I say the NYPD crime scene unit is the best in the world, I definitely mean that. And anyone that's that's work with them will uh, give them that thumbs up. And all you folks like listening to us, uh, we, we, uh, we applaud you. Thank you so much uh, for giving us the respect, giving us your time, giving us the shout outs and just uh, sitting in the audience and being part of this audience. So on behalf of police off the cuff, real crime stories, I'm Bill Cannon with uh, my co-host Phil Grimaldi and today's special uh, guest, John Pelushi. Thank you guys so much and have a great day. Thank you. Great, great being here. Stay safe, everyone. One episode.